On the night of June 25, 1884, inside the restaurant Ingles in Madrid, there was a strange sight. Brown faces were mingling as equals with some of the creme de la creme of Spain's elite, all of whom came together to honor two painters who were the pride not only of Spain's growing Filipino community, but also of the Philippines itself. One was Felix Resurrección Hidalgo, who won the silver medal at the Madrid Exposition for his work, Christian Virgins Exposed to the Crowd. The other was Juan Luna Inovicio, who won a gold medal in the exposition for his work, The Spolarium. Both showed the world that the native Filipinos were not savage, lazy indios, but just as capable in creating masterpieces as their white brothers. At 9pm, the banquet started. There was chatting, there was eating, and there was dancing as the band played popular Filipino tunes that made the Filipinos nostalgic for their homeland. The medical student who spoke at the banquet three years before, Graciano Lopez Jaina, delivered a fiery speech paying tribute to the two painters, while at the same time lambasting the theocracy in the colony. Then another young Filipino stood up to make a toast, a 22-year-old medical student from Calamba named Jose Rizal. After congratulating his countrymen, he called for the further assimilation of Filipinos into the greater Spanish nation. Despite all the problems between Spain and the Philippines, he declared that the bond between the two lands would remain forever, saying, quote, Even if Spain's flag vanished, her memory would remain eternal and everlasting. End quote. At the same time, he issued a warning. Quote, what can a piece of red and yellow cloth do? What can rifles and cannons do where love and affection do not grow? There, where there is no fusion of ideas, union of principles, and shared opinions. Rizal's speech barely registered on the radar. In Madrid, that is. In Manila, however, it was a whole different story. Some praised it, while others thought that his idea of assimilation was heresy. Rizal had to assure his mother that he had no plans to do anything other than becoming a doctor. Little did he know that it was just the beginning. In this episode, we follow Jose Rizal through his early years in Europe as he meets with the Filipino community there, forms friendships with some of the foremost European experts on the Philippines, and finally achieves notoriety with his first novel, Noli Me Tangere. This is Philippine History Z. With Jose Rizal saying goodbye to Manila as he sailed for Spain to study medicine. Now, I'm just going to plow through his first stay in Spain. Rizal initially lived in Barcelona for a few months before moving to Madrid to continue his medical studies. He also took courses in literature and philosophy. 
For the first time in his life, Rizal was able to enjoy rights and liberties that he wouldn't have had back home. Short of outright calling for separation, which probably would have gotten him in trouble, he could pretty much say or write anything he wanted without a friar or Guardia Civil breathing down his neck. One of the first things Rizal did in Spain was write an essay titled Amor Patrio, Love of Country, which was published in the Diario Filipino, the first Spanish Tagalog bilingual newspaper in Manila. He later joined the Circulo Hispano-Filipino, the first Filipino organization in Spain, until its demise in 1883, though he attempted to resurrect it a year later. Rizal also formed connections with Spain's liberal circles, especially those in his university. This was a period when many students and professors fought for less censorship and greater academic freedom, ideas that would have had you blacklisted back in the Philippines. Still, despite these newfound freedoms and friends, it was clear in Rizal's letters that he was never really that happy in Spain, nor did he think that it was all that impressive. He frequently wrote to his brother Pasiano asking to be allowed to come home, with the latter insisting that he finish school first. It wasn't that Jose looked at the Philippines with rose-tinted glasses, but when you spend your life seeing Spain placed on such a high pedestal, the disappointment could be fatal especially when compared to the other places you visited. For example, when Rizal first arrived in Barcelona, his reaction, as preserved in a letter to his parents, was disappointment. After seeing the tall, magnificent buildings in Naples and Marseille, Barcelona's buildings weren't exactly mind-blowing. Although he was not an outright separatist, at least at this point, his experience is similar to the Venezuelan national hero, Simon Bolivar, who witnessed the incompetence and corruption of the monarchy up close. This in turn fueled Bolivar's desire to liberate his home as well as the rest of Latin America from Spanish rule. What's the lesson? If you are a colonial power, the last thing you'd want is your colonial subjects realizing that the mother country has its own problems too. But most of all, Rizal was just homesick. And the more dissatisfied he was with living in Spain, the more he wanted to go back. This was most evident in 1884, when one of his favorite professors, Miguel Moraita, was fired for making a speech calling for greater academic freedom which did not sit well with the Catholic Church. Many students protested, leading to ensuing crackdowns, which further alienated Rizal from Spain. If the universities there were going to be as oppressive as in the Philippines, he wrote to his family, then he might as well go back home to be with them. Protesting the school's decision, Rizal refused to obtain his medical degree as long as Moraita's replacement was still working, despite completing all his requirements. It was only in 1887 when he received his diploma. 
In late 1885, about a year after completing his studies in Madrid, Rizal moved to Paris before moving to Heidelberg, Germany to continue his studies. It was in Germany where the young Rizal had the time of his life, loving the people and the museums. He also loved the language, becoming fluent in German. Rizal was especially impressed with how German scholars portrayed the Philippines in their writings, preferring them to the condescending, if not downright negative, depictions by Spanish writers. He was saddened by how foreigners knew more about his people than he or most Filipinos did. Rizal also formed friendships with some of Germany's famed ethnographers and anthropologists who studied the Philippines, eventually becoming a member of the Berlin Ethnological Society and the Berlin Anthropological Society. Ultimately, in Germany, Rizal would arrive at one simple conclusion. Racial differences are not inborn, but the result of circumstances. It was also around this time that Rizal started exchanging letters with Ferdinand Blumentritt, a professor in what was then Austria-Hungary who wrote several works on the Philippines despite never having been there. Rizal's correspondence with Blumentritt revealed his most intimate thoughts, from his impressions of his fellow Filipinos to his growing cynicism towards the assimilationist movement in Europe. This frustration was most evident in a February 21, 1887 letter where he argued that it should be Spain demanding Hispanization of the Philippines and not the other way around. At one point, Rizal even told Blumentritt that he wouldn't be opposed to violence if the Spanish government continued its abuse of the Filipinos. As Rizal wrote, quote, It is up to Spain to choose peace or ruin, because it is a clear fact, as everyone knows, that we are patient, too patient even, and peaceful. But everything ends in this life. Nothing is permanent in the world, and the same goes for our patience. Nevertheless, at this point, Rizal still felt that peaceful reforms were a better alternative to a violent revolution that was bound to fail. But he also made it clear that everyone can only take so much. The major hallmark of Rizal's first years in Europe was the writing and publication of his first novel, The Noli Metangere. Rizal probably first considered writing the Noli as early as January 1884, during his failed attempt to resurrect the Circolo Hispano-Filipino. He proposed to its members that they write a book on life in the Philippines. Even though the attempt fizzled out, the idea stayed in Rizal's head. It's like the Beatles breaking up before they became big, and John Lennon going straight to imagine. Rizal first started writing the Noli in Madrid in late 1884 or early 1885, completing it in Germany around 1887. With some financial help from his brother as well as a friend, the first 2,000 copies of the novel were printed in Berlin.
The title, Noli Mi Tangere, which is Latin for Touch Me Not, comes from the Bible. Rizal wrote to his friend, the painter Felix Hidalgo, that he wanted to talk about things that no one had ever talked about, and that the book was his response to the insults that have long been hurled towards the native Filipinos. Nolimitanghere centers around Crisostomo Ibarra, a young Spanish mestizo who, like Rizal, had studied in Europe. When he returns to the Philippines, he discovers that his father died in prison after being convicted of murder. Ibarra ends up clashing with the tyrannical Padre Damaso, the local parish priest, who not only refused to give Ibarra's father a Christian burial, but also ordered his body to be thrown into the river. There is also his childhood sweetheart, Maria Clara, who is actually the biological daughter of Damaso. Other characters include Elias, an aspiring revolutionary who sees violence as the only way the Filipinos could get reforms, Fray Salvi, a pervert friar who lusts over Maria Clara, and Capitan Tiago, the subservient Gobernadorcillo. Ibarra eventually gets implicated in a failed uprising on false pretenses. With the help of Elias, Ibarra tries to escape. The book ends with a Guardia Civil regiment chasing the two as they sail in the river, leaving it unclear whether either of them survived. The book also contains various subplots, the saddest of which involves Basilio and Crispin, two poor youths accused by the local priest of stealing. Although Basilio is able to escape, Crispin is not so lucky, and it's presumed he was beaten to death. When their mother Sisa finds Crispin's clothes, she goes insane. She is eventually found wandering by Basilio toward the end of the novel, and dies just after recognizing her son. Basically, the entire novel is Rizal's war and peace style commentary on Spanish-Philippine society, touching on everything from government corruption and abuse of the friars to the daily customs of the people. Maria Clara, the novel's quote-unquote leading lady, was likely inspired by Rizal's real-life childhood sweetheart, Leonor Rivera. Maria Clara is portrayed as the quintessential Filipino woman. Beautiful, submissive, chaste, and devout. The only time she shows any determination is when she tells Padre Damaso that she would rather become a nun than marry anyone other than Ibarra. For many years, Maria Clara was seen as Rizal's idealization of the Filipino woman. A close reading, however, shows that the truth may be a bit more complex. Given Maria Clara's fragility, meekness, and strong propensity for fainting spells, it seems more likely that Rizal was making fun of the Maria Claras in his life. This satirical notion is further supported by the fact that Rizal 
was a huge fan of German women, whom he saw as smart, independent females his sisters should emulate. I can't imagine Rizal rolling in his grave for centuries as he sees people worshipping something that he was actually making fun of. Rizal spared no target in his book, be they Filipino or Spaniard, rich or poor. Some of the worst characters in the novel are Indios, like the social climbing Doña Victorina, who is so obsessed with being white and Spanish that she disparages all things Filipino. There is also Doña Consolacion, a laundry woman turned Spanish officer's wife who mocks and abuses Sisa until her husband stops her. Ultimately, the novel's message is this. This is the Philippines. These are its problems. Let's fix it. Now, when you set out to write something, there's no better test audience than the people you already know. When I was preparing this podcast, I did a live reading on Discord with some friends and family just to gauge their reactions. Rizal was no different. He first sent copies of Nolimitanghere to his friends in Europe, including Antonio Rejidor, who remarked, Who hasn't met a Damaso? Even among Rizal's friends, the book wasn't without its critics. One criticized Tiago and the friars as too one-dimensional and stereotypical, although this reader had yet to finish the book. In any case, the book's reception in Europe was good, and Rizal could only wonder how his countrymen back home would react. He would soon find out. On June 29, 1887, after finishing his medical studies in Germany, he announced to his parents his intention to return to the Philippines, finally setting foot on his homeland in August that year, five years after he left. So, what kind of Philippines awaited Rizal? To be fair, some reforms had been introduced while he was in Europe. For example, in 1884, the tribute was officially abolished and replaced by a new tax called the Cédula Personal, which all residents over 18 years of age had to pay. After they paid, they were issued a residence certificate, known as the Cédula which they had to carry at all times. Then, in 1886, several governments were established in the provinces, replacing the old alcaldes mayores with several governors who answered directly to the governor's general. Among others, the civil governor's duty was to punish anti-Catholic acts and impose fines or up to 30 days of imprisonment. Unlike in the old system, where the alcaldes had both judicial and executive powers, under the new system, there was a semblance of separation of powers, with the civil governor's judicial powers going to the newly established judges of first instance. Despite these reforms, however, some of the old problems persisted. In a letter to Jose while he was in Europe, his brother Pasiano 
wrote about two new priests in their town. While one was decent and only left the convent to hold mass in the church, the other constantly preached to girls to remain virgins, and if one of them admitted to a bit of hanky-panky, he would go to her home to watch her while she slept. Nothing creepy about that. The Guadisville were also as bad as ever, harassing anyone not carrying a cedula. One resident even complained that the Guadisville made his servant work for them the entire day without eating. Such complaints were met with mere excuses from the gobernadorcillo and other local officials, who probably feared the Guadisville. It definitely didn't help that cedula requirements included having a good moral conduct and reputation which could only be verified by the local friar. If the friar didn't like you, you were placed on a watch list. Taking a page from Voltaire, Passiano wrote, quote, Abuses are perpetuated not because tyrants want to perpetuate them, but because their victims accept them. End quote. Copies of Noni Mitanghere first made their way to the Philippines in May 1887. Early reception was positive, some calling it the Filipino Quixote. One friend even wrote to Rizal claiming to know a publisher who could make more copies and sell them without catching the attention of the censors. It wasn't surprising that by the time Rizal actually came back to the Philippines, his book was already causing quite a stir. When his ship docked on Manila Bay, he was greeted by a reporter who was stunned when he saw his passport. But not everyone was gushing over Rizal and his book. At this time, the Archbishop of Manila was a Dominican friar, Pedro Payo. When he managed to obtain a copy of the Noli, he immediately submitted it to a committee of friars and laymen at UST, which condemned the book as heretical, irreligious, anti-patriotic, and quote, injurious to the government of Spain and its administration in the islands, end quote. Payo passed the committee's findings to the Governor General, Emilio Terrero, who then submitted the Noli to the government's censorship committee, Later, Terrero summoned Rizal to his office to discuss his book. Fortunately for Rizal, 1887 was a year when a liberal government ran Spain, and by extension, the Philippines would have a liberal governor-general. At most, Terrero warned, no, ordered Rizal to leave the country, though he also requested for a copy of Nolimitangere. Terrero also extended an invitation for Rizal to come over to his home for dinner. The rest of the colony was not as welcoming as the governor-general. At this time, Spain and Germany were having a dispute over the Caroline Islands. Hence, some accused Rizal of being a German spy and agent of Otto von Bismarck. Others accused him of being a Protestant, with some even calling him a warlock. The Guadalajara constantly watched his every single move, with the corporal thinking that he had a foreign passport. Though they never went after him like the other orders, even the Jesuits 
wanted nothing to do with him, turning him away when he tried to visit the Ateneo Municipal. Most of all, he was now labeled a filibustero. Rizal had first heard the term during Izquierdo's persecutions in the wake of the 1872 mutiny. Though mostly unknown to the masses, it was a word that struck fear in the hearts of middle and upper-class Filipinos of all races. Originally meaning pirate, it meant that anyone who questioned Spain and the church was, in Rizal's words, quote, a dangerous patriot who will soon be hanged. End quote. Things got so bad that Rizal started receiving death threats. One anonymous letter, allegedly written by a friar, accused him of being ungrateful to Spain after studying in her universities. The letter concluded with the writer telling Rizal to watch himself as a quote-unquote hidden hand may end his days. In response, Terrero assigned José Taviel de Andrade, a Guardia Civil lieutenant, to act as Rizal's bodyguard. Surprisingly, the two became good friends, with Tabiel even admitting that he hated the institution he served. Still, the local atmosphere grew increasingly tense, especially after the censorship committee officially called for the Noli to be banned in December. Every day, Payo hounded Terrero for Rizal's head. It was only thanks to the Governor General, Calamba Civil Governor, and Taviel that Rizal wasn't tossed in a cell. By early 1888, everyone, and I mean everyone, including his family and friends, were literally paying Rizal to leave for his sake and theirs. He got the message. And on February the 3rd, 1888, he once again left Manila, only six months after his return. He first went to Hong Kong, before returning to Europe, practically an exile. It was there that his story would continue. This is Philippine History Z, a podcast hosted by me, Emma Lavinia with Jose Ampila as producer and Marco Revilla as associate producer. Music for this episode is by Kevin McLeod, Sasha Enda, and Lilo Sound, with sound effects from freesound.org. For a full list of music and sound credits, as well as the source of this episode, check out the show notes on the podcast's official site, philippinehistoryz.buzzsprout.com. Also, Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at PHZ Podcast and on Instagram at Philippine History Z Official. On the next episode, Rizal returns to Europe where he rediscovers an old account of the Spanish colonization of the Philippines. Then, he joins forces with fellow Filipino nationalists to start a new newspaper aimed at advancing reforms for the Philippines. Once again, This is Philippine History Z. See you in the next chapter.